0: Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I am your co-host, Lee Johnson, and I'm here with my co-co-hosts, Rick Lee and Jason Reed, and today our very special guest, Michael Hart. Michael is a political philosopher, probably best known for his book, Empire, which he co-wrote with Antonio Negri. And then the other two parts of that trilogy, Multitude, War and Democracy in the Age of Empire and Commonwealth. But today we're going to be talking about his newest book, The Subversive 70s which, by the way, was the best decade for babies, in my opinion. But before we do that, let's get our drinks and our rants and raves. So, Rick, let me go to you first. What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about today?
1: Well, so as you could probably tell from my voice, I'm a bit under the weather, so I'm just going to have a tea with honey and lemon. Today, I am... Raving, and it's actually a rave to attach to one of Jason's earlier raves several episodes ago. I'm raving about a particular episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. <laughs> Season two, episode nine, they do an episode called Subspace Rhapsody, in which, for very weird science fiction reasons, every once in a while the crew of the Enterprise break out into song like a musical. By the end, they figure out that the way to solve this problem is they need a big finale, like the whole company (laughs) on the stage, singing and dancing. It is fantastic. So, Jason, I want to thank you for turning me on to that show. It really is delightful. And this episode in particular, I think, is fantastic. And you
2: know, of course, the Buffy episode where they all had to sing. Yes. Yes. So I I can see the relationship.
0: I'm not so sure everything being a musical is a problem that I think needs solving, but whatever. (laughs) 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 All right, Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about?
3: I'm going to have a baby genius from local Bissell Brothers, like just down the road from me. And I'm going to rave about Babel or the Necessity of Violence, An Arcane History of the Oxford Translators Revolution by R.F. Quang. (laughs) My only criticism of this novel is that it sounds like that's three titles, but everything else about this novel is brilliant. It's kind of about colonialism and empire, and it's also about academia and the way in which in academia our love for knowledge sometimes blinds us to structures of oppression that we're getting involved in. So it's a great book. Could use maybe one less title, but that's my only criticism.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, Michael, welcome to the podcast, first of all. Thank
3: you.
2: I'm glad to be here.
0: And what are you drinking?
2: I'm drinking a Manhattan, like usual. And my rant is sort of of a different order. It's an annoyance about the relationship between the Democratic Party and abortion politics in the years since Stobbs. It seems to me like... Every time it comes up, it's as if abortion is going to help the Democratic Party get elected rather than actually transforming the access to abortion care.
1: Right.
2: You know, of course, the universal, at least among people I know, disappointment that after Dobbs' decision, there weren't people in the streets and the country wasn't blocked. But it's extra disappointing the way it's being used. And there isn't really enough progress except as kind of a byproduct for electoral politics. Uh. I'm not sure if that qualifies as the right kind of rant. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. I like
0: the extra disappointing rant. Yeah. <laughs>
1: right. It's a super rant. Yeah. Lee, what about you? What are you drinking and are you ranting or raving?
0: I am just going to have two fingers of bourbon. I don't even really care what it is. It could be the well bourbon today <laughs> with a rock in it. And today I am raving about the Netflix animated series Captain Fall. <laughs> So Captain Fall is, a. I should note first, an adult animated series. So not safe for work, not safe for kids. But it basically is about this goofy sea captain who is hired to helm a cruise ship and becomes the perfect fall guy captain fall becomes the perfect fall guy for this illicit smuggling operation it is so obscene in some places but is actually really geniusly done and has a incredible kind of complexity of characters for an animated series it's not very long it's only seven episodes so highly recommend it again captain fall it's a animated series on netflix All right, Jason, so today we are going to be talking about the subversive 70s, and we really appreciate you bringing your friend, Michael, to talk with us about it. But how do you want this conversation to go?
3: A lot of histories of the present sort of overlook or skip over the 70s, jumping from the 60s of radical struggle to the 80s of Reagan, Thatcher, and repression, or... If they do talk about the 70s, they talk about it as kind of the end point of the 60s where the struggles fall apart, collapsing into infighting or going too far, devolving into violence. What do we overlook in not thinking about the 70s as a decade of struggle? So joining us to talk about what we can learn about the 70s and what we can learn about political struggle is Michael Hart. So I guess I'm going to start with a question I think a lot of people are going to start with when they learn about this book or read this book, and that is that it is something of a kind of departure for someone who's known for his work in philosophy, the Deleuze book, and political philosophy with the co-authored books with Negri. Why turn to history as a way of doing political theory? Yeah, that's interesting. That
2: is the way I'm thinking about this, you know, because I'm not an historian, but it is a way of doing political theory thinking from the movements. Tony and I have been doing this for a while. We've been casting it as theoretical books, which are in some ways engaging with and thinking together with contemporary movements, you know, sometimes historical, but mostly contemporary movements. Like, I don't know, with Empire, we were very much in dialogue with globalization movements and the way they were thinking about things. In fact, often I presented it, sometimes Tony disliked this part, as you know, I'd say our book is completely unoriginal. The movements are actually thinking these concepts themselves. You know, they're not naming them that way. But, for instance, the concept of empire, if they thought that it was really U.S. imperialism, they should every week be in front of the White House, be in front of the Pentagon. But instead, what they were doing is experimenting with new centers of global power. You know, like one week it's the IMF and World Bank, one week it's the WTO. So it's a real intelligence, I think, of a kind of mapping of... The global system, you know, there was a lot of criticism at the time. I'm not sure if listeners will remember this sort of thing about this summit hopping. Right, you know, each week moving to the next thing. But I think there is a theoretical intelligence to that, trying to work out a different concept of power and do it things. But I guess Jason, to really actually go back to your point, the theoretical way of saying this is that I believe and have worked for a while with the notion that collective movements work with concepts, that they work theoretically. It's not just that intellectuals think and movements act. You know, there's not this division of labor, but rather there's a lot of really creative and important theorizing that goes on in movements. You know, then the question is, what do you do with that? How do you work with it? And that's in a sense, what I see as part of the task. There's a transcoding maybe going on or working with, because it's sometimes of a different order, the kind of theorizing that goes on movements and the kind of theorizing that we do in the library. Or in the hotel bar.
1: (laughs) But then I wonder, Michael, is that theorizing necessarily for you explicit or can it oftentimes be implicit, which then would require another act of sort of drawing out the implicit theory and concepts and making them explicit? I think you're right
2: about that. And that might be also true of this book more than the co-author books with tony i'm at certain points trying to draw large questions like here are some key concepts even when the actual term is not used by all the different movements the concepts are being shared and developed and then there's kind of correspondences as i maybe described what was going on in south korea in this struggle and what was going on in iran and nicaragua you know these different things when they weren't using the same terminologies often and yet I do think by seeing them side by side, one can recognize, like you're saying, an implicit difference. It's a delicate balance, though, because if there's too much, I don't know, work done on it or refining done on it, then it reinscribes the centrality of the theorist. Mm-hmm. Right. It can largely be done at the level of just working with the terminology that the militants were using themselves. That at least right. is part of it.
0: So what do you think it was about the political theory and the political activism of the 60s and the political theory and the political activism of the 80s that made it so tempting to skip over the (laughs) 70s, which again, a decade in which so many great babies were born. I agree
2: with you. And I unfortunately neglected that part of the analysis. (laughs) I mean, there are a lot of things, but I should start with the movements of the 70s, you know, in general are complicated, And there's nothing pure about them. So I do think, of course, especially in the U.S. or in France, too, in several places, regarding the 60s, they were complicated, too. But there's been inherited a kind of mainstream image of pureness and light. And historians will say, oh, yeah, we never saw it that way. Fine. Yeah, that's true.
0: But who listens to (laughs) historians? I mean, well, they're good (laughs) in
2: everything and they're right. But we still have a few of Woodstock to Selma to any number of other things. We have dignified people who were doing clean and beautiful things and whatever. Whereas in the 70s, partly because of the extreme repression, you know, not discounting the repression in the 60s, but still nonetheless. And also the issues became much more complicated. Here's another way of saying it, which is part of the complications really. When you neglect the 70s in this way, you are also neglecting all kinds of other subjects that became prominent in the struggles that really weren't in the 60s. I mean, the feminist struggles in the U.S. were really primarily a 70s movement. It's not that they didn't start in the 60s. Gay liberation also, you could say, starting with Stonewall, you don't have to start with Stonewall, but still. Or you could say it this way, with both of them. You could either see 68 as an endpoint. Or you could see it as a point of departure. And if you see it as a point of departure, you have different subjects. I mean, you have very different racial components, different questions about gender, sexuality, etc. And so this is part of what gets so complicated. Because, you know, one of the things that Jason mentioned that I used just as a little hook in the beginning was that there's a common sense view or a standard view of the 70s as, being you know, like all the moons fell apart. Well, part of the reason they fell apart is because... Feminists were tired of taking the shit, Yeah, you know, so that the movements were disrupted from within. And that's partly what some people view. Oh, that's falling apart. I don't view it as falling apart. I view it as a kind of coming to terms with multiplicity as a basis of struggle. Mm -hmm. I know I say it in a little bit too convoluted way there, but that's a super powerful thing. It's a problem. You know, I'm not saying... Oh, just do this and all your problems will be solved. No, it's a problem, but it's the right problem. It's a real problem.
1: Right. That sounds to me like structurally very similar to how one could look at something like the French Revolution, where labor and the so-called peasants would be behind the revolution. And then at the next moment, they look around and they say, wait a second, (laughs) this hasn't helped us. And so the revolution at that moment would splinter because you recognize that I've been a part of this movement. Movement, but now it's not representing me. The so-called unity of this movement is actually more like an elision of my own interests.
2: That's beautiful. And I think there's a precise parallel of something that occupied me a lot, which is, at least in certain contexts, but a lot of them in Europe, in the U.S., and, and in Latin America, too— I'm probably trying to think about elsewhere. It's a super ridiculous aspect of this project for me, by the way, which I'm trying to do countries all over the world, (laughs) and there's no way I can take account of them or even totally understand them. But anyway, what I think fits exactly in parallel with what you were just saying was that in many locations in the 60s, there was the understanding that there was a centrality of the struggles of the industrial worker. Mm Primarily white and male, or almost exclusively white and male, actually, in this context. Right. And, of course, there were other problems. There was the race question. There was the woman question. You know, these are conventional things. But they came, in some ways, as subordinate to that centrality of the industrial worker. That fell apart. I mean, it fell apart for complicated oh. reasons we can get to, partly through the restructuring of capital and repression of the movements and etc. But nonetheless, it was a great thing that it fell apart because... It then poses the relative autonomy of these other movements that then one has to work at the articulation rather than understanding a sort of vanguardish force that could then represent the others and really can't represent the others. There has to be a different articulation of forces. See, that's what excites me so much about some of the movements in the 70s, is the efforts to construct this articulation of multiple liberation struggles that are addressing structures of power that each have relative autonomy, even though they're nonetheless connected, that seems to me something great. One last thing before, and this is figuring with our rant, I should have done it as a rant, <laughs> rant earlier thing, you know, which is that I think many people have trouble with these movements of the 70s. You know, many of my friends, at least, I don't know, you have better friends. I mean, no, these are excellent friends I'm talking about, which is they say, okay, Michael, this is all great, but they were all defeated.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Or like everything mm-hmm. failed. They might even say, Everything failed. Like, I would make a big distinction that, no, they didn't fail. They were defeated. Mm-hmm. The difference, I guess, I'm mostly thinking about there is a failure seems to me an internal flaw, whereas a defeat is a recognition that there was an external force that was more mm-hmm. powerful. Mm-hmm. But then when you think about it, history of liberation struggles with of defeats. You know, even what looks sure. like a victory at first turns out to be defeat. I don't know. Haitian Revolution, Paris Commune, you name it. Defeats don't bother me. Or rather, no, of course they bother. (laughs)
0: It's easy there.
2: Defeats don't discount what happened. That's what I want to say. All of these were just clustered under the rubric of why is it difficult to appreciate some of these movements of the 70s?
1: Now I suddenly realize that I should have asked this question way at the beginning. But could you give some examples of the movements that you're talking about, just so people who are listening might, you know, attach this to some specific movement? Yeah,
2: that's great. I mean, so industrial worker movements and the ones I was looking at mostly were in the U.S. and Italy, but also in Argentina and France. Movements of workers trying to claim their own autonomy, you know, not only from capital, but even from the claims of representation of union structures but also movements that were working on trying to pose the self-organizing capacities of workers. You know, taking over factories, self-production. This is like one case in France I talk about. Argentina, too, had a whole coordination of that. So anyway, that's one. The anti-imperialist revolutions, I mean, you can think about Chile in the beginning. Portugal, maybe you call it an anti-fascist revolution in 1974. I tried putting together in one chapter in a way that is difficult what was satisfying to me, Iran and Nicaragua, they in first would seem very odd, but they happened essentially at exactly the same time in 1979. And I was in both of them really pulling out the thread about the mixture between theological and political struggle, Mm -hmm. the way that Islam and Marxism or Islam and communism functioned in the Iranian revolution, something that I think is really interesting that I learned quite a bit about it. And of course, in Nicaragua, I knew much more about, and I'm sure the listeners know much more about, liberation theology, the Catholic component of the Nicaraguan Revolution. Anyway, those are some of them. And then, of course, feminist movements, largely in the U.S., but also some in other countries, anti-racist movements, various places, especially South Africa and the U.S. But you get the idea. I mean, I tried and, of course, failed to be as broad as possible, because even with differences, cultural and political specificities, I think there's an enormous coherence among them. Sometimes just because they're confronting similar enemies, and that we can talk about later, but also because, this is part of the inspiring thing for me, there was an enormous circulation, both of ideas and news, but actually of people moving around, you know, when you hear what's happening and high-end elected, go to Chile and figure it out, or go to Portugal, or here's a beautiful one, and it's probably hypocryphal, like probably not true. <laughs> but nonetheless, it circulated, which is that, you know, there are three African colonies of Portugal that were conducting anti-colonial struggles for quite a long time, but this continues in the early 1970s, Mozambique, Angola, Guinea-Bissau. And they, during their anti-colonial struggles, developed a concept and practices of what they called popular power, A kind of revolutionary democracy. This is Cabral's concept for it in Guinea-Bissau. And what they called commissions were like councils, you know, starting at the village level and moving up. Okay, so the story is that the mid-level officers, the colonels, who then in 1974 conducted an anti-fascist revolution in Portugal, that they learned this from the people they were supposed to be fighting, and that they bring the same practices and same concepts back to Portugal, that the anti-colonial struggle against the Portuguese developed. So like I say, I have no evidence of an actual transmission of this, but right. it's a beautiful idea. <laughs>
0: don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Well, <laughs> no, just yeah,
2: I guess that's right. Or even if it's not actually true, it's sort of true. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You actually know how to think about it.
3: You know what would really suck right now? A commercial. Imagine the witty and entertaining philosophical banter of being interrupted with an ad for MailChimp. Terrible. You can help us keep ad-free and free by supporting us with a donation. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotelbarsessions where you can sign up to make a monthly donation at several different levels. If you'd prefer a one-time donation or to make sporadic gifts when you're able, just visit our website hotelbarpodcast.com we can find links to support the podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App. Michael, one of the things I think comes out of your discussion of the 70s is the problem of political struggle where there is not a central subject of that struggle, like namely the working class, and how one of the things that was happening in the 70s that led to these movements falling apart is that they were trying to deal with a certain kind of multiplicity across differences, whether it be racial, gender, etc. But one of the other things that I think comes up in your discussion of the 70s is how There's a real redefinition of what is politics, right? I mean, the word subversion for you is sort of what this is about, right? It's both being opposed to something and creating something at the same time. Like in the gay liberation movement, it's talking about new kind of relationships, new kind of pleasures. And in your discussion of liberation theology in Nicaragua and the Iranian Revolution, it's also about a new sensibility, And so I guess part of the thing you're trying to extract from the 70s is like a broadening of what we think about politics, not just about the acquiring of certain economic protections or certain rights, but also about creating new ways of living and looking at the world. Is that partly what we're trying to pull out from the 70s as well? That's super interesting.
2: I guess let me try to understand how to go with this by backtracking a little bit. I mean, so... Part of what's required in something that is very recognizable as the 70s from today's perspective is about breaking that classic division, say, between structure and superstructure. You know, like, it's not as if it's only the economic things that matter and the other cultural things are just things. So that in order to think about the possibility of articulating feminist struggles and anti-racist struggles and class struggles, one has to already rethink at least the structure superstructure relationship or its consequences for politics so that's the first thing You know, once I'm saying this, I'm sure listeners have it already in their ears. How do we construct a movement that is at once feminist and queer and anti-racist and uh, claustro, et cetera? I think they did this differently in the 70s, and I think it's super useful today to look at that. That's a separate thing. Well, but say more about that. Don't
3: bury the lead. So,
2: I mean, the most direct way to engage it, especially for U.S. thinkers, is through thinking both the socialist feminist and the black feminist work on this need for articulation. What we've inherited I think necessarily contains two halves. There's one half which is recognizing the ways in which the structures of power are interwoven and mutually constitutive. So for socialist feminists in the 70s, the challenge was thinking, how do we understand capitalist patriarchy as a concept? How do we understand the ways in which they're interwoven? But at the same time, ineluctably and maybe the basis of that is how to think a feminist struggle and an anti-capitalist struggle together. You know, these are two separate things, really. They're, of course, related. But I think that that analytical part of the structures of power can only be done, or this is certainly the socialist feminists who are doing it, from the perspective of the movement, understanding the structures of power. So in some ways you could say intersectionality has become a term that's so widespread and used in so many ways, it's notoriously difficult to talk about because of the different ways. But it's primarily used today to think about the structures of power and the way those are interwoven. You know, what always comes to mind to me is just a passing comment that Angela Davis uses relatively often is we need to think about the intersectionality of struggles. Those multiplicities... And the theorizations of power were in some ways, I wouldn't say subordinate to, but necessarily done from the perspective of what are the needs of the movements? Like, what is the relative autonomy of the movements? Because you can't just fold them into each other. And what are the ways in which they're related? This is all trying to do it in the way that a U.S. listenership can most grasp it. I'm sure everyone listening... Except Dave, maybe, <laughs> has read the Kumbaki River collective statement. But one of the things that strikes me about the statement is their process of collective political education. They say, and I can't remember, there was, you know, three or something. We started by recognizing ourselves as a anti-patriarchal, anti-capitalist and anti-racist group. But then progressively, we also became an anti-imperialist group and an anti-nationalist group. You know, that this question of multiplicity is a process of political education. That's why it doesn't bother me that people often complain it's a bad infinity or something, or it's annoying that there's this list because then you add anti ableist and you add the other ones. I'm totally happy with that. Right. That list is determined by your level of political education. So anyway, all these came back to Jason when you halted me at the point where I was saying there's some ways in which The multiplicity is done differently in the 70s, and I'd say done better. And I think I'm primarily saying through this whole thing that it's done in a strategic mode. It's a question of knowledge, of course. Saying it's strategic doesn't mean you want to pretend that things are what they aren't. But part of what strategic means is you create the conditions for that to be true. Let me come back to another classic text by Iris Young in this volume called The Case for Socialist Feminism, one of the classic texts of the 70s socialist feminism in the U.S. and Britain. And her point was that from the perspective of the movements, you can't consider either the movements or the structures of power as hierarchical. You can't say... Patriarchy is primary and capitalism is serving to it, or vice versa. That can't say that the worker struggle is primary and the feminist struggle. You have to pose them on the same plane. The word equal doesn't actually make any sense here. And I found the same thing in the San Francisco State struggle by the Third World Liberation Front, you know, student groups, Mexican American students, black students. And what it meant for them, this coalition, the Third World Liberation Front, was that there wasn't a primary. It wasn't like, okay, the black students are leading this, but the rest of us are, you know, following along. I would say in both cases that it's strategic in the sense not that you analytically recognize there's some celestial abacus in which you could say there's equality between the suffering of black people and the suffering of women. There's no Way they're actually equal. Mm-hmm. But a task for the movement is to create a strategy in which they can participate equally. Equal is maybe the wrong term. You should say it was a double negative, not unequally or not hierarchically. And that's the way it has to work. So these are two ways in which I found things in some of the movements of the 70s that seem to me to have a great relevance for today. I mean, I guess I should pose it another way. And maybe this is anytime one's looking backward 50 years at something. There's some ways in which. You read about these movements and you recognize them, you say, ah, there were the seeds of what has become the present. There are other ways, and this is the more powerful ones, which are, wow, they were way ahead of us. There's like this anti-chronological movement going on where we can't talk about liberation without caveats. Whereas there was a kind of full-throated feminist liberation and gay liberation and black liberation. And it's a little bit the way Keonga Taylor in her book at the time five years ago was complaining essentially It's a big step down to go from black liberation to Black Lives Matter. You know, not that it's not important and super relevant and necessary, but it's a symptom, let's say, of the difficulty today of thinking liberation in a full-throated way.
0: I wonder if one of the things that's difficult about incorporating the 70s in at least the American popular imagination is that a lot of times we think about both the 60s and the 80s in terms of the heroes of those decades, you know, Robert F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and then Thatcher and Reagan. (laughs) I mean, these, of course, are not common heroes. But the protagonists. One set of heroes got assassinated and the other set of heroes basically assassinated. But nevertheless, when you try to think of who were the heroes of the 70s, as you just did, Michael, you think of theorists and collectives, students and movements. And so part of the difficulty of kind of grabbing a hold of it is that one, it was so dispersed, two, it was so diverse, and three, it didn't have heroes. Or less. I mean, but, you know, but of course I think it had heroes. The, yeah. I mean, but, but, but you're right.
2: The theoretical point is exactly right. And it corresponds, I think, to part of what was understood as democracy, the democratization of the movement. You know, when you think of the rules of some of the feminist collectives in the US in the early 70s, you know, like, no one speaks to the press without the authorization of the group, nobody puts themselves ahead. So in some context, there was a super conscious refusal of that. The other way you could put it too, though, which is equally true, and both going on at the same time, is you can't think the politics of the 70s without thinking repression. I mean, there was a repression in the 60s, of course, too. Ooh. But the repression in the 70s was of a different order, I would say. And who would have served as heroes were assassinated. Fred Hampton was assassinated. You know, there was both actual targeted assassinations and then also all kinds of extra-legal forms of...
0: Disappearing.
2: Yeah, disappearing. Actually, legal arrests but also character assassination. I mean, there was a whole long repertoire of, let's call it counterinsurgency in a variety of places. You know, the U.S. is dramatic in that regard. In terms of numbers of deaths, it doesn't hold a candle to some of these other countries. So anyway, that might just be another way of thinking. It was both intentional on the part of the movements of a collectivization, Yeah, like you were saying, that, you know, what we think about are movements, not about a central figure, but also hand in hand with that, I think, is the results
3: of the forms of repression. Can we go back to, I know you mentioned this earlier, but you cite Robin G. Kelly. Too often, our standards for evaluating social movements pivot around whether or not they succeeded in realizing their visions rather than on the merits of the power of the visions themselves. I mean, I want to talk about that because, on the one hand, of course, you can't use success as your standard if you're on the left or whatever because the historical situation we're in right now, you know, anything you'd bring up as an like exemplary moment, you bring it up in terms of its defeat. So that makes sense to me, but I guess I'm wondering how you can separate out. Success from evaluations, or how you think about this new standard of trying to think about the movements on their own terms rather than what has resulted after them?
2: I mean, it is hard. It is hard. But let me try to levels of responding you know the, a more immediate one which is maybe only a prelude to sort of responding is to separate out what i think are failures and what i think are defeats it's defeats i'm talking about here and i think that robin Kelly's talking about too defeats what i said before which is just distinguishing between internal flaws and external superior force So that's one thing I mean, here's an example. I hope I can make enough sense of it shortly. Is the first thing I did of any importance to me, maybe, as a graduate student. And it was really in order to meet Tony Negri because I had, you know, admired his work. He was hard to meet at something. I translated a book of his on Spinoza, a very nice book. I was a grad student. It was a lot of work for me. But Tony was in prison when he wrote it as part of the Italian repression. And there's a part where he's writing about the fifth book of the Ethics, which we all know is like, notoriously obscure or difficult or something. But he was posing in political terms. And there's a line in there about the fifth book, The Ethics. It would take too long for me to go, what does this have to do with the fifth book? But he says, <laughs> we have to recognize a defeat without being defeated. I'm talking about Spinoza, but he was writing this in 1980 from prison, stuff like that. The phrase could seem internally contradictory, but I wouldn't interpret it just to mean recognize a defeat, not be defeated, meaning just like, keep going. Because if you keep going in the same way, it seems to me, you know, whatever. I think what this not be defeated means for him is, and this would come back actually to the fifth book, strangely, is to innovate. To not be defeated means you have to keep going, but not in the same way. Right. I mean, that's a little bit the way I regard our ability today to make sense out of movements in the 70s that were defeated. We're not supposed to reproduce them. That would be absurd. And we have to recognize that they were defeated. You know, so that's another thing that, you know, it's not just wishful thinking, but that they could be the basis of an innovation. That would be where I'd come back to it. Right. Okay, I would translate the Robin Kelly quote. Uh, it's a little bit in my own Deleuze fetish to say that despite that these were defeated, doesn't mean that they're not real. It means that they're not actual. Things can be real without being actual, Mm -hmm. as we all would know, or I don't know, the kind of books we read tell us this. And I think that that's a really interesting way of approaching what he's trying to get at in this, which is to grasp what was essential in living in these movements, despite the fact that they're now no longer actual. Then, of course, the point is to actualize that reality. But that's, in a way, a different I don't know. I guess I tried three different responses which were on different levels of things, which is a sign that I don't really know what I'm talking about. See, if I know what I'm talking about, I can give you just one response. This multiple attempts is always a sign I'm trying to figure it out myself.
0: Can I ask you about something that is often pointed to as one of the victories of the 70s, which is Roe v. Wade? I think we now know that that wasn't a victory. It's interesting just in response to what you just said about how to not be defeated by defeat by innovating is that I think now retrospectively we can see that the innovation that was done in the 80s was on the rights part. The reason that that victory now we will say was not a victory was because of this entire Christo-fascist kind of narrative about abortion and the really, really, really savvy political program of the right that grounded itself on that. So is there a sense in which part of the subversiveness of the 70s really motivated repressive forces and the oppressive forces to innovate in ways that brought more defeats? I'm thinking also, for example, of the legal and social progress made in race relations in the 70s manifest itself in the anti-crime, pro-prison narratives of the 80s and 90s. You see where I'm going. I totally
2: see where you're going. And please forgive me. I want to take a little bit of a detour and then come back to it. I mean, you're in a way taking up my rant from the beginning. (laughs) Here's the view I have, which does try to actualize something that was real in the 70s, about ways to confront Dobbs now. What I think is most important now is to... Construct a project of collective autonomy around access to abortion and to trans health drugs. From my understanding is, in some ways, learning from Latin American experiences in recent years in Mexico and Argentina, and many other countries that constructed what they call an accompaniment program. In other words, people who are trained to be able to help women do self-medicated abortion and be able to take care of, advising them. So it's autonomizing the project. It's not asking for state. Of course, I mean all for. Keeping the clinics open, making more clinics open, if they would do that, I'm not against the medical establishment in principle. But we're in a situation where the construction of collective autonomy, and see what I mean by autonomy here. It's not individual autonomy, which is great. There are all kinds of ways on the web that you can find out how to get the drugs, how to do self-medicated abortion, et cetera. That's not going to work for a lot of people. What is going to work is a collective project of autonomy that socializes the process And this is very much like the notions of autonomy that I'm trying to bring out in many of the movements in the 70s that in some ways are a response to different forms of state repression. But why shouldn't we call Dobbs and the different state laws repression in that same way? I mean, this is, I think, not happening enough. But that's another matter. That's another contemporary strategy thing we could go down. But at least you see what I mean by autonomy. You know, that's what I was just trying to get at with that. Your real question, though, you were just using that as an example for talking about how liberation movements can both stimulate and actually be used in successive forms of repression. Yes, And that's a good point. And even sticking in the abortion thing, you're too young to remember, of course. But in the 80s, what struck me about Operation Rescue, you know, the anti-abortion thing, was how they took all of the practices of sit-ins and different practices that looked like students protesting the Vietnam War, but it, in fact, they were doing it around clinics and the sort of right recuperation of the left. I mean, Tony Negri and I, in different projects, we had kept repeating an axiom that resistance is prior to power. It's a way of thinking what you're just pointing out, which is that innovation really happens in the moments of liberation, I should say, rather than resistance. And that power is not really creative, it recuperates the methods and forms often in distorted upside-down mirror or something like that. Let me go back to the starting point for this, for me and Tony, I guess, too, was something in a book by Mario Toronti, an Italian Marxist. The book is called Workers and Capital. It's been recently translated into English, but it was published in the 1960s in Italy and what the autonomous workers' movement used as a principle was the notion that workers' struggles precede and prefigure capitalist development. You know, so the capitalist development can be read or should be read as not only a response to workers' movements, like I don't know, you'd say the dock workers are particularly unruly, and so now we're gonna containerize the ports and get rid of them all as a response in that way. But the harder part is that prefigure the capital actually takes the terms. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I could try to explain that what it right, could mean in right. workers' struggles, but it just comes back to your point, which is there are ways in which the kinds of reactionary responses, and reactionary is a perfectly correct term in this thing. You could say from one point of view that the struggles for liberation prefigure them. You could say in another point of view that the power captures and repurposes some of these things. One could view that as a tragic narrative. Like, God, whatever we do, they're going to find ways to use it against us and something like that. (laughs) Like I was saying before, I think it's universally true. You can just apply it, whatever, you know. But I think it's a useful optic, partly because it emphasizes the power of liberation struggles. And the power and the innovation of it. I mean, to come back to Deleuze, this is partly where Tony and I were thinking this thing about resistance. There's a footnote in his book about Foucault where he says something like, you know, everyone reads this business about resistance and they think about resistance as something that comes after power. Which is partly a problem of the word itself because there has to be something that you're then resisting and the thing comes. And so Deleuze says, no, in fact, resistance is prior to power. And in my reading of Deleuze, it's not just that it's prior chronologically, it's prior ontologically. That's where the innovation happens. And according to Deleuze, that's how we're supposed to read Foucault. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a lovely book you wrote on Foucault. I'm not sure it's really Foucault or if it's what Deleuze wanted Foucault to be. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's another topic. But it, just another example, though, to right. come back to your point, I think this is another way of conceptualizing it in philosophical terms.
0: I realize this is kind of a ticky-tack question, but... If I could, you said that power is not innovative, it's not creative, but then you just said that it repurposes. I don't understand what the difference between innovation, creation, and repurposing is here.
2: Yeah, that's a good point.
0: I mean, just to go back to the example that I was using, and I'm happy to be proven wrong about this, but I think the political strategy that we saw develop beginning in the 80s, Newt Gingrich and all of the famous pastors right, that said, look, what we have to do is we have to pick one platform that we can get our people committed to at a very guttural level. And they tried several of those before abortion was the one that stuck. But once it stuck, and once they found that, they were like, okay, now – We've got to redistrict. We've got to own state legislatures. We've got to pick all the Supreme Court justices. You know, I mean, like that seems to me like creative, innovative work.
2: I think you're probably right in that could be a caveat on what I was saying. I don't
0: disagree that resistance was prior to that. I I think I just don't agree that power is not itself innovative or creative.
2: So it might be that I need to say this at a different level. So, for instance, one of the things that's important to me, also about the 70s, is the restructuring of capital, the destruction of labor unions, the yeah. export of factories stuff like that. And it's something that was forced on capital and it was forced to do it as a response to workers power, rather than being like what a brilliant idea mm-hmm. if we can make more money by doing x. I mean this is an old Marx himself thing, you know, capital doesn't use technologies except when it's forced to by forms of production to become untenable this is the discourse of the 70s, factories became ungovernable because the labor revolt was so strong in the early 70s in the U.S. I'm sure the oil crisis had something to do with it. Other things had something to do with it, but it's a response to the workers. I mean, so I think that you were agreeing in some ways with the precedes. Struggle precedes Uh the restructuring of power. The harder part, and this is the one you're contesting a bit, is prefigures.
0: I think the way that you just said it there makes your prior use of the repurposing term Mm -hmm. make a lot more sense Mm -hmm. to me. Why do we have a gig economy now? Well, because at some point we looked around, we like, we've got all these ungovernable workers, (laughs) you know, let's make them gig workers, let's make them contract workers. And yeah, that's not a creative moment. That's a repurposing.
2: One should negate that there's certain kind of creativity or even genius in coming up with something so horrible, where you deprive workers rights and stuff like that. But you could put a little bit to say, look, These revolting workers in the 70s were saying, My parents wanted this, but I don't, I see it as a kind of death where I have 40 hours a week and 50 hours a week and I want to be free. And then capital says, Great. I'll make you free. You can have precarious work and you can be an Uber driver during the day and you can do something else at night. And, you know, like, so you could see it as a kind of Twilight Zone episode where you get what you wished for and it turns out. Mm-hmm. Yes. But I think you're absolutely right, too, that one shouldn't discount that they were forced into it. And maybe that the terms for the solution were already presented to them in some way. Yeah. But I don't have that much at stake in the axiom. It's more like a methodological thing. I mean, For me and Tony, we've been writing together so long, but one of the things I think we often carry, which is that we have great comrades and fellow theoreticians that are fantastic at analyzing how much we're fucked and the strengths of power and all the details of neoliberalism and stuff like that. What they can't do, seemingly, is talk about our power. Mm -hmm. There's some ways in which we've viewed our work, I don't think Tony would say this out loud, but I view our work as, in some ways, compensatory. And so a little bit, this was an excuse for the axiom, which is only partially true, which is let's try to base our theorizing on the fact of our power and see what we get from that.
0: To join the Hotel Bar Sessions community and interact with us and other listeners, just follow us on Twitter, we refuse to call it X, at Hotel Bar Podcast. Where you can also find the Twitter handles of all three co hosts. We're on Facebook and YouTube and even occasionally TikTok, so look for us there as well. You can also visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com or email us your thoughts and episode ideas at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and recommend us to a friend. We'll save you a seat here at the hotel bar where the drinks are poured. And the ideas
3: One of the things that I was thinking in the conversation around abortion, going back to this point about defeat, is the way in which what we took our victories were actually defeats. I think one way you could look at what happens and simplifying things greatly is that relying on the Supreme Court, relying on the Democratic Party with their commitment to using abortion as a fundraising thing, as many critics have pointed out, and not actually legalizing and so on, it was actually a defeat rather than developing the kind of forces you're talking about in terms of autonomous, self-organized forces that had their primary goal, women's autonomy, women's reproductive freedom, and not the electoral fundraising strategy or whatever the case may be. Because at the end part of your book, you cite this epigraph from Althusserre. And since you reference Spinoza and you reference Deleuze, you've taken all my material here. I have a reference <laughs> out to for it. And it's this line about, like, nothing limits you more than a problem poorly posed.
2: Yeah, you know, what he says, there's nothing more difficult and takes longer to solve than a problem poorly posed. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and I feel like, like I said, that we have posed the problem poorly. Yeah. You know, the problem of how to secure some of the things that people were struggling for, whether it be struggle for reproductive autonomy and autonomy for women or struggle for anti-racism, that some of the avenues that we pursued or that were pursued to make these things effective were actually poorly posed. My reading is you see us as a, a kind of an impasse. (laughs) <laughs> where it's useful to go back and look at what other things have happened and maybe rethink where we are in the present. And it seems to me that one of the things that we've been talking about is that things that we dismiss as failures might have been more successful than we thought. But also the flip side of that is that things that we thought has succeeded may have been more failures waiting to happen. And failures, not defeats, in the sense you're talking about, like the internal structure, like the internal structure to set up and safeguard abortion rights was internally contradictory and not really oriented towards what it supposedly was protecting. The trajectory we chart for ourselves may be more riddled with defeats than we want to admit.
0: Yeah, like can you fail and not be defeated? <laughs>
2: No, that's great. I think I want to separate two things which overlap, but are not exactly the same, at least in my view. The one is the success-defeat dialectic, because it reminds me, Fred Jameson, I think he's always quoting Sartre, this thing about defeats that turn out to have been victories and victories that turn out to have been defeats. There's this kind of dialectic that he poses about it, which seems useful but with Robin Kelly, I was trying to assist before, what seemed like a defeat actually might be a victory in a certain sense. And you're doing the opposite side of it. You did that really well, I think, too, which is what seemed like a victory turns out to have been a defeat. It's slightly different than this Althusser thing about false problems or problems poorly posed. Althusser does beautiful things like this sometimes. I mean, reading him, it feels to me like our political task as philosophers is to identify properly posed problems. Uh. And I mean, this is maybe what we have to more often do is to reveal accepted truths as actually poorly posed problems, Mm -hmm. because those poorly posed problems are just going to divert us for decades and lead to nowhere and confusion, etc. It's just a nice framework for our vocation. Just to link it to one other thing, though, which I think goes exactly with that even though Althusser, I'm not sure, was thinking about that. You know, the often cited and beautiful lines in Marx's preface to the critique of political economy, where he says that humanity only poses itself problems that it already has the material conditions to solve. Yeah, You know, I love that. I'm not quite as confident that it's always true. But what it is saying, to put this together with the Althusser, which is that once we have properly posed a problem— the solution to it is in some ways imminent to that recognition of it. What I have to do then is translate this back to the more practical and political context that you were saying. Like, so maybe this is the way we can do it with Roe v. Wade and Dobbs and contemporary militancy around this, which is the problem wasn't really so much a question of right and legal access. And when we say autonomy, it's not to pose a legal right. It's about having a collective power. Roe and the court decision, you know, would of course have been better to have a legislative resolution instead of a court decision back then. But even that doesn't answer what seems to me the real problem, which is about a collective autonomy or a collective power to be able to manage one's own reproductive life. I think that that's where reproductive justice lies. So anyway, that might be a way of trying to translate it back into the terms you were starting Mm -hmm. with. There was one false problem that really thwarted me when I was trying to begin this project. And that was the question of violence and nonviolence, because Mm. the stumbling block for me, and I think for many people, actually, thinking about revolutionary movements in the 70s, was that clandestine armed struggle takes such a big place, even though there are relatively few people, such a big place in the collective memory about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are probably ways strategically in which that was done, too, giving it such prominence, but it was also spectacular in itself. That seems to occupy all the, I don't know, intellectual memory space. And so you don't see all these projects of redefining democracy, of creating collective autonomy, of struggling for liberation that get eclipsed by this thing. So I think what actually helped me at a certain point was to recognize that for most of the movements I was talking about, you can't say universally, I guess, violence versus nonviolence was a poorly posed problem. That was not the problem. They were in a context of extreme violence, not of their own making. The repression was extreme and the violence against them was extreme. The solution to it, and maybe the recognition of the real problem was, it's not a problem to decide between violence and nonviolence or trying to make violence face violence in some sort of, I don't know, Gandhi-esque way. But rather, how do we manage the protection against the repression and at the same time in a way that can protect democratic autonomous movements, keeping a separation between the two? So once the problem is no longer one of violence, it's rather recognizing that the problem is how do we protect and preserve the possibilities of liberation projects in a world of extreme violence or repression. Anyway, that was one way which the Althusser quote that Jason was referring to helped me shift the terrain, I guess. And then I was able to discover what seemed to me this whole world of political projects that had nothing to do with the question of violence. They had to face it sometimes, but in general, it's completely oriented elsewhere toward different problems or different way of posing the problem. That's what I'm saying. That
0: was a top quality subversion. You just did there. <laughs> <laughs> guys, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. And just want to remind you that Michael's book, The Subversive Seventies is out now in a local bookstore near you. If you even have bookstores anymore, if not, you can get it at the Oxford University Press website. And while you're throwing money around on the web, don't forget that you can also support this podcast by visiting our site on Patreon. That's patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. We appreciate your support, and we definitely appreciate your listening. The bartender's picked up our drinks and is kicking us out of here. And, Michael, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. This has just been great.
1: Yeah, I had a great time. Thanks a lot, Michael.
0: I don't think there's any subverting this, so I'm going to call a cab, and I will see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.